Galatians chapter 1, we'll start in verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I will have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who has set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went up to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. The only they were only were hearing it said, "He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy," and they glorify God because of me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the testimony of uh, your servant Paul's uh, apprehension by you on the road to Damascus, Father God, where you took him from being a persecutor and being to being a preacher, Lord. We greatly thank you for that, Father God, for his salvation and all our salvation, Father. We ask you to breathe upon this text tonight, Father God. Let us know, Father God, that whether it's Paul or me or any Christian today, our true desire is to be a servant of Christ and not a pleaser of men. Teach us these truths, Father God. Breathe upon the text tonight, Father God, that we can understand to love you more. In Christ's precious name, amen. As we're going through the book of Galatians, we've made mention the last several times of certain key terms and key words that are necessary to understand the book of Galatians. And I can't emphasize or overemphasize the, my heart on, I pray that everybody's reading these six chapters. That it's not something that is read once or you just think about it, but something you're following along and that as the weeks and the months go on, that this book, this liberating book that has liberated many from the bondage of religion will begin to set people here from their own personal bondage of whatever you're going through. This is the power of God for salvation. It's the power of God for sanctification. It sets men free. And my hope and desire is that you follow along and that you'll never be the same. And you'll really understand what these six chapters are about. Some of the key terms we've been speaking about, one is called Judaizers. Judaizers were so-called Jewish converts from Judaism who said they believed in Christ. But at the same time, simultaneously, they were holding on to their traditions and holding on very zealously to the law of Moses, specifically circumcision. And that to them, 
Salvation was, yes, faith in Christ, but. And their but was Judaism. They couldn't get rid of, you know, the Mosaic law and circumcision. They were called Judaizers. And that a Gentile, that's a non-Jew, needed to be circumcised and to follow Mosaic law in order to be saved. Faith in Christ was not good enough. It needed to be supplemented with being a Jew. So to be a Christian, you had to be first become a Jew, and then you become a Christian. You had to convert twice. Uh, Paul would have nothing to do with this. Legalism is another concept we need to know, and it's a, it's a, the concept is a certain requirements that are needed to be met in order to be pleasing to God. Now. Legalism is still with us today. Judaizers are still with us today. It changes in degree and shape and form, but it's still with us. Uh, but to be accepted with God is only faith in Jesus Christ. Legalism can never please God. Any kind of religious protocol doesn't please God. Any kind of externals does. We can turn water baptism into a sort of legalism. Uh, many so-called Christians do that. They make it the sticking point of salvation, that you need to be water baptized in order to be saved, instead of it's a confirmation that you are saved. Uh, and they turn it into legalism. Legalism is a concept. It's a very strong concept. Judaizers are the proponents of this concept. And what it is is that they put something in the way of just faith in Christ to be accepted by God. Uh, that is with us. We can do it to ourselves. Legalism, as I spoke about two weeks ago, is the natural state of man. The natural state of the human heart. It believes it can please God apart from any law. So is its counterpart, libertarianism, which believes it can please God apart from His will. It's a sort of uh, contradiction, but Proverbs 16.2 says it best when it says, All man's ways are right in his own eyes, but God weighs the motives of the heart. You know, we really think we can really put it on and be right with God. Uh, there's a key verse in Galatians I think everybody should memorize, and it's found in 2.16. It says this, that no one is justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Everything Paul says from now until 2.16 is flowing out of that one truth. That no one can be justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. Everything Paul we're going to speak about today, everything we're going to speak about the rest of these two chapters is flowing from that thought. It's, it's embedded in the mind, in the heart of the Apostle Paul that there is no possible way that any works of the Mosaic law or any religious protocol could ever make a sinner right with God. Everything he says flows out of this. Everything he says after chapter 2 verse 16 flows from that. Chapter 3 and chapter 4 goes to prove that point theologically from the Old Testament. Chapters 5 and 6 go to show you through Christian experience. That it's faith working through love that really shows we're saved. Water baptism is a sign. I know many people have been water baptized. I've never seen them again. I don't know where they're at. But those who are truly converted will always possess the fruit of love. It's faith expressing itself through love. Chapter 5, verse 13. Going back to verse 10. I want to read 10, 11, and 12. 
These three verses form a thesis. It's an opening statement that the rest of chapter 1 and 2 are going to go to support. Let's listen to Paul. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that I preach by me was not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it by a revelation of Jesus Christ. Before we can move on into Paul's defense, and that's what he's going to do. Paul's going to defend his apostolic ministry. Paul's going to defend the message that he preached. We need to reconstruct the problem so we can really get to the heart of what this chapter, the next chapter says. As a matter of fact, the whole book. This is what's going on that Paul is combating. They were coming around, these people snuck into the churches that Paul started. And they came in and said, well, Paul, he was just flattering you. He's preaching cheap grace. He's trying to please man. He's not a servant of Christ. That's why when he came to you, you Galatians, he told you you don't need to be circumcised because he didn't want to scare you away. He didn't tell you about the Mosaic law because, well, he was watering down the real gospel, not Paul's gospel. The real gospel that comes from Jerusalem is still telling Gentiles you need to be circumcised. It's still telling people that you need to be follow the Mosaic law, but Paul, he sort of cheapened it, he didn't want to scare anyone away, he, he wanted to flatter you, he wanted to be liked, he wanted to be received, so what he did, he took all the obligations away, and he just taught you Christ, and you, you think you're going to be saved, well, he only gave you the half of the message, because he wanted to be well liked, he was self-serving himself. That's basically the point that these false teachers were telling the congregation about Paul, who started the whole ministry to begin with. That he was a man pleaser. That's why Paul says in verse 10, Am I now trying to please man? Am I, am I trying to please man by flattering men? Is that what you're trying to tell me? Paul would say, Absolutely not. I didn't receive the gospel from man. I would never please man. I'm a servant of Christ. The second point here is that these people that came in, these Judaizers that were undermining Paul's work in Paul's church that he started by God's grace, they were saying, well, you know something, Paul is a rogue preacher. Paul was part of the Jerusalem church, he was part of the mother church, but you know something, he went rogue. He, when he came here, he stopped preaching Moses. And what they were trying to say is that Paul's credentials to preach came from the apostles at the mother church. But by the time he went through the Mediterranean and got to this place in southern Turkey, he had changed his whole methodology, he changed his whole message, he changed the whole gospel for the sake of being a man pleaser, for the sake of preaching cheap grace, for the sake of being liked. That was the accusation. What Paul is saying here in the rest of the text is that, no, 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 no. I am not pleasing man. I am a servant of Christ. And he's going to go prove these two false accusations of his genuine conversion, his genuine call, and the genuineness of the gospel he preached. And it's not Paul who's wrong, but it's the false teachers 
who are wrong. And he's going to do this quite uniquely. First, he goes to his divine origin of his salvation. He goes to the road to Damascus experience that he had. He also goes back to the time before he was a preacher. He was a persecutor. He also goes back to his obsessive love for the Lord, his love for Moses. If anybody should know the law of Moses, it's Paul, not the false teachers. If anybody should be preaching circumcision, it's Paul. If anybody should preach the Mosaic law, it's Paul. But why doesn't he preach it anymore? Well, we're going to find out. In chapter 2, he goes on to, in this chapter, next chapter, he goes on to two visits with the apostles. One was for acquaintance and it was personal. The other one was quite tense. Then there's the testimony of those who personally he persecuted. They were praising Paul. Though he was once a persecutor, now he's preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And then in chapter 2, we go into one of the saddest... I can't wait to get there to preach on next week. But Paul's open rebuke of Peter for being hypocritical on this very matter. All this goes to substantiate that Paul was a genuine apostle with a genuine message for genuine conversion and for genuine sanctification. That's what's going on over here. So before we can get into it, we need to know those two accusations. I'll say it once again. People snuck in to undermine Paul's message, telling people he preaches cheap grace, salvation without obligation, and that he was once a true apostle from Jerusalem, had credentials from other men, but he went rogue. Paul would have nothing to do with that. Let's go to verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Paul starts off with common knowledge. Paul was well known. He was a well known persecutor. He had an infamous uh, reputation as a persecutor who violently persecuted the church. He's making a point here. Though I was a compulsive, obsessive destroyer of the church, I was bent. I had no other ambition but to destroy this church. The point he's making why would I now be preaching the faith unless something happened in my life. He's making a point from a negative point of view. Verse 14. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. He had this great love. He wasn't just a persecutor of the church. He wasn't just trying to destroy the name of Christ. Paul wasn't trying to destroy Christians. Paul was destroying this new movement within Judaism. It was a sect. It was a cult. Uh, it was, all it was was undermining everything that were taught in the Old Testament by lifting up this name of Jesus. They weren't called Christians yet. They were a cult. They were a sect of Judaism. Paul leans on his pre-conversion life in Judaism. How zealous he was. The point he's making all this is, what happened? What happened to my life? If I was so extremely zealous for the traditions of my father, if I was so extremely zealous for the Mosaic law, to the point that I was being 
advancing more than anybody else of my contemporaries. This man was self-consumed with religion. He was promoting himself in Judaism. But something happened, what Paul is saying here. And we see what happens here in verse 15. But when he who set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. That is what happened. Paul had a but God moment. But God stepped into Paul's life. But God set Paul apart. That God set Paul apart before the foundations of the world, before his mother's womb, before he was conceived in his mother's womb was when the call of God came on Paul. Unbeknownst to Paul, God had a greater plan for this persecutor of the church who was so zealous for Judaism to change him in an instant to become a preacher of the faith only days before he was persecuted. These are Paul's very unique qualifications to be a preacher, to be saying what he's saying, to be proclaiming what he proclaims. He even claims it to be a pre-existent dimension to this, that God did all this work before the foundations of the world, before he was in his mother's womb. That's when the call of God came on Paul to preach. God was pleased to take his persecutor and make him a preacher to the Gentiles. The Galatians church were proof of his apostolic ministry. Verse 17 goes on. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and then returned again to Damascus. Paul here in verse 17 is a short reminder that he did not seek man's instruction when it came to preaching the gospel. But he went away to Arabia. It's, it's an allusion to God's continuing education. Now what Paul is doing, Paul didn't have any to go up to Arabia. He didn't go, he didn't go up to uh, Jerusalem. He didn't go for a, a private seminar with the apostles to learn about this Christian faith. Uh, understand something. Paul's understanding of Jesus Christ was nothing less than divine and supernatural. He was not tutored. He was not schooled. He was not lectured. He didn't go to the seminary up in Jerusalem. No. Paul was apprehended in a supernatural way in his mind before the foundations of the world, before his mother's womb. He was set apart specifically on this earth to preach the gospel. That is the point he is making. He is defending himself. He's defending his call because he's going to defend his gospel. Paul is not concerned about himself. He's concerned about the message he preached that if anybody distorts it, let them be accursed. Because if you change the message that Paul preached, you'll damn men to hell. The point is this, he's more concerned about the message, but unfortunately because he attacked on the messenger, he had to defend himself. Paul is not happy about defending himself. He'd rather not defend himself. He's forced into defending himself so he can defend the message that brings life. Paul does not bring life. The gospel brings life. And it is worth, in Paul's estimation, to defend himself so he can defend, as he says, my gospel which I did not receive from man. It's important for us 
It's in these three years that Paul learned the power of the gospel. He was tutored by God himself. As he went through the Old Testament, he recognized something that the Judaizer, Peter, did not recognize it. That the gospel wasn't just for the Jew. He went back to the promise made to Abraham that in you all the nations of the world would be blessed. Paul grasped this. Peter never grasped it. Peter struggled with prejudice against Gentiles. We see that in Acts chapter 9. We see it in Galatians chapter 2. Peter had a hard time with preaching free grace to the Gentiles. But Paul had no problem with it whatsoever. Paul was tutored by God. Verse 18 and 19. Again, he's defending his ministry. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. We see here, he uses the evidence of his personal visit with these other apostles, and it's not a personal visit to be instructed or be lectured or be tutored or be schooled in the gospel. He was there for a personal visit for, to get acquaintance. It was a mutual edification. And the point he's making, he's saying to them, he's like, understand something. The gospel I preach to you does not come from man. It comes from God himself. How important is that for us? So important is this to Paul. He says in verse 20, And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Now, in the 21st century, that doesn't mean much to us because everybody lies. Every politician lies. Pulpits are lying. Lying is part of life. A true Jew would have heard Paul's appeal here. This emotional appeal and appealing to God is not some kind of hyperbole where just to make it a point. Paul is actually saying, I am calling God as my witness to bear witness to me that I am not lying. A Jew would have understood that this is the deepest and highest appeal a man can make. There is no other place you can make. You can't appeal to anybody higher than Jehovah God. Uh, I think Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Keep your vows because anything else besides this is of the devil. But we live in such a time, in such a culture where lying is, it's, it's second nature to people. So if anybody was to swear on God, right away I would say that means he's probably lying and trying to make a point. Let's listen to verse 21 and 22. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. He's, he's defending himself. He's trying to make a point, make it clear to this Galatian church that understand something. What they are telling you, they're lying. Listen to my life story. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that were in Christ. They were only hearing that he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Paul brings up a time where he went to a region that was outside the apostles' jurisdiction. And he preached freely there. So, so, so far away from Jerusalem that though he preached, the only thing they heard was the news. They never saw him face to face. But they heard the report. 
And there's nothing sweeter than closing your eyes and when you're hearing someone give a testimony of what God is doing in their life. And I hear testimonies, I close my eyes and I just listen because I just want to hear the fragrance and see the fragrance and smell the fragrance of the Holy Spirit on another man's life. And Paul is calling into account. He's calling people as a witness. Listen to what everybody else is saying about me. I'm no imposter. I'm no self-imposed apostle. Understand something. Something happened to me one day. I was apprehended by God. I was called while I was in my mother's womb to preach the gospel. I am no apostle. I am not a rogue preacher. Understand something. I have the real message. The Judaizers are bewitching you. They're distorting the gospel. And your soul is at stake. You are close to being severed from Christ. What a charge. Paul had a unique preparation to gospel ministry. Unlike the apostles for three years, walked with Christ. They were there on Pentecost when the Spirit of God was poured out. They were there for 40 days where the resurrected Christ was speaking to them about things concerning the kingdom of God. Paul did not have this preparation. As a matter of fact, Paul was going to kill, not to be saved. But yet God saved him. When it comes to bridging the gap with a text we just read, and what does it mean to you and me today? Is it necessary for us to really get into this? Yes. In every way, what I try to say, the best I could say it, means everything to your spiritual life as you sit here. Your life depends on it. And I know that, but most of you don't know that. Most people reading this autobiographical account of Paul's life and his call into ministry and the gospel he preached and defending himself, he sounds like an oversensitive preacher. But understand something. Did anybody love Christ today? Did anybody feel forgiven today? Did anybody feel close to Christ this weekend? Is anybody grateful in this room right now for what Christ has done for you? Understand something. It's because Paul defended the true gospel. That's why. Please understand that. That's why. It means everything to us today. You know, we don't want to get weighed down with the details. It's easy to get weighed down with the details. And we don't want to forget the number one point that Paul is saying here is that his call and his gospel is God-ordained. And that the Galatian church had to listen to it as it was the voice of God. You know what I'm going to say next? You and I have to listen to it as it's the voice of God. Though 2,100 years or 2,000 years have, have separated us from Paul, understand something, the gospel is as binding on you as it was the Galatian church. It's a binding on me. When Paul says, I am an apostle of God, set apart for the preaching of the gospel, I have to say, Amen. Speak, Paul. Speak to my heart. Show me the distortions of my own life. Show me how I butchered the gospel. Show me how I'm not living right. Show me, Paul. Like you did the Galatian church. Show me my blind spots, Paul. 
The gospel is as binding on your life right now as when Paul first spoke. Yes, it has everything to do with humor. As we said two weeks ago, we can personally distort the gospel for convenience sake. It is easy to twist truth. It is easy to twist words, even from people, our parents. We can twist words and say, well, you know, they didn't really mean that. Never mind someone who lived 2,000 years ago and wrote. Learning from others' mistakes sharpens our ability to discern error. Please don't miss that. Learning from other people's mistakes can sharpen our ability to discern error, whether it's others or our own. Spiritual discernment is a byproduct of understanding a text within its context. And I'm going to take a moment on this. Again, spiritual discernment is a byproduct of understanding a text within its context. In our desire today to move from reading the scripture into application, which some of you might be familiar with, and that means, well, you read five verses of scripture and then you give me five points on how to live a better Christian life. Most churches you're going to go to, you're going to go to a church that's going to have a 45-minute song service, read five or six verses of scripture, and then give you a to-do list on how to be a better husband, how to be a better father, how to be a better Christian, how to stop sinning, how to please God, and, and then they're going to go home and they're going to have dinner. Understand something. Five-point sermons are okay on how to make you be better or how to feel better. But the gospel is not about how you feel. It's about truth that sets you free. I know that. Paul knows that. I pray you understand that. We're not here to meet felt needs. We're here to preach Christ and Him crucified and Him be elevated in your heart that you too can stand against every temptation of Satan. That you can stand against the culture that loves to preach to needs. And to make people feel like they're accomplishing something. What's more important, when we move from just reading a text into application, and we don't spend the time to develop like John did last week or I'm doing now, to develop what's going on behind the scenes, people don't grow in discernment. So when they hear false preachers, they can't discern whether it's true or false because all they're waiting for is tell me what to do. Learning the history, learning what Paul was facing, teaches us to be analytical and not gullible. Within the Christian church, because we get into these sermons that just deal with felt needs, they don't ever understand, is the preacher preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, which alone sets me free from the wrath of God, and which alone empowers me for spirit life. That is the problem. That is behind all this. 
So when we come here and we explain the text and we give you the history and we give you the background, it's not because we have nothing better to do. It's because we want to prepare your minds and your hearts that when you go out and someone's preaching on television, you can tell right away there's something wrong with that. That is not the gospel that's trying to get me to jump through a hoop so I can be blessed and it's not pointing to Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross. That is how we bridge the gap between this text and today. It has everything to do with your life. If I could tell you the one time that broke my heart when somebody was crying to me and saying, Pastor, Pastor. And I said, what's the problem? And I happen to know the person very well. And they're not financially well off. And I said, I heard someone so preaching on television, I wrote a thousand dollar check. Because I needed to be blessed. Now I know the person, I know the person doesn't have a thousand dollars. I know the person hasn't given a thousand dollars to a church in two years. Because they don't have the money. But the man was so convincing that that was the missing link in their spiritual life. But the only thing that was happening, they were out a thousand dollars. There was no blessing attached to it. God's grace wasn't attached to that. That was manipulating people's emotions to try to find favor with God. That's why it's important. When you come to church, you listen to what's being said. And you understand the background of the book of Galatians. Why do we have it? There's a reason. There are false teachers distorting the real gospel that gives you life and gives you hope and gives you eternity. And for that, you fight and you continue to fight. And we still fight against that today. Again. It's important to understand motives and agendas. Is this God's gospel of grace and freedom in Christ which leads to, leads to spirit-empowered life? Or am I being manipulated by someone somewhere? Or was it Satan behind us? It takes years of study and application. We should not avoid the sake of trying to be allegedly revelant, revelant at the expense of being discerning. If you want to be discerning, it takes time. It takes application. It takes reading. It takes listening to truly discern truth from it. Let's go into application. To be sure, every true minister of the gospel will be accused of preaching cheap grace at some time or another. Jesus Christ was accused of eating and drinking with the sinners. They didn't like this. This would-be Messiah was actually bellying up at the bar with the guys and, and eating with the sinners and hanging out with the prostitutes and, and, and the tax collectors and, and, and another rogue people from the faith. They, they didn't like this. He was, he was cheapening the Mosaic law. He was cheapening Jehovah. He was accused of preaching true grace, of cheap grace. Anybody who really preaches the gospel of Christ at times, if you come in for one sermon, 
you could make it sound like, or think it sound like, or you could perceive that they're teaching or preaching cheap grace. There's no obligations. I heard MacArthur say that one day. He says, sometimes you can come here, it sounds like I'm preaching cheap grace, and other times I'm preaching the law. And sometimes it sounds like that. Sometimes obligations, like picking up your cross, of denying yourself, of suffering for your witness for Christ, sometimes it could sound like it's hard and it's heavy. Not every sermon is supposed to make us sing. Sometimes it stings, and sometimes it hurts, and sometimes we get introspective and, and saying, wow, where am I in the faith? Uh, uh, do I have faith without works? Maybe that's a good place to start. Sometimes it sounds legalistic and sometimes it sounds like the law. And other times you, you hear the message that no, you cannot do nothing to please God. And that is the truth. And it sounds like cheap grace that all we have to come in is no obligations. You know what the obligation that's binding on your life? You know what the obligation binding on my life? is two things. To love God and love people. Because Paul says that's the fulfillment of the law. He who loves is saved. Because God puts love in us. Second application. Contrary to cheap grace, Paul's gospel in Galatians points to man's total inability to please God in any way, shape, fashion, or form. No, no, no. Paul didn't preach cheap grace. Paul's gospel proclaims the helplessness and hopelessness of all humanity. And the only hope is Christ. Paul's gospel offends man's pride and is unflattering to the ego trip humanity is on. Paul's gospel gets us into trouble and puts ministers in prison and gets people's heads chopped off. Preaching works keeps people. Preaching good works and preaching the Mosaic law just points to man's lack of spiritual performance. You're not doing enough. Do a little more and God will accept you. No, but preaching grace points to man's spiritual deadness. And he's totally undeserving. That's the gospel. That's the gospel Paul preached. No. Paul, contrary to cheap grace, you can never accuse the apostle Paul. If he was preaching cheap grace, he would not bear the scars of Jesus on his body. We will speak about a lot of these themes as we go through this epistle they sort of get a little, they repeat themselves in different ways. But the third thing on application, it's Paul's gospel that unleashed the Protestant Reformation. Don't, don't miss this, please. Don't miss this. As I said before, are you enjoying freedom in Christ? Are you enjoying to know that you know that you know your sins are forgiven? I tell you right now, there's people in the world today within the Roman Catholic system, they don't know where they're going. They have no idea, am I saved? They're scared to say they're going to hell and they're scared to say they're going to heaven. They don't know. Their whole life is ambiguous. They don't know that, yes, Jesus died once and for all to set you free forever. Forever. That's the gospel. Amen. 
it unleashed the Protestant Reformation and rocked the medieval Roman Catholic Church to the core. It set ablaze the biggest revival that ever has taken place since Abraham came from Ur to Chaldeans. There has been no work of grace ever since then than the Protestant Reformation. Grace alone, Scripture alone, faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. That is it. It all comes from this book. And we'll close with this. Be weary of ministers or people that build themselves up by tearing down someone else's reputation. That's what they were doing here. They were building up their distorted gospel by undermining not Paul's message, undermining Paul. If you can get people to think there's something wrong with the minister, if you can get people to think there's something wrong with the ministry, then it makes no difference what they say anymore. Because where there's smoke, there is fire. And they attacked Paul's message by first attacking Paul. Be weary of people that tear down other ministries for the sake of pain and malice. Especially when they don't back it up by clear exposition and arguments from the scriptures. Paul is coming strong against these false teachers. But he just doesn't do it by, believe me, don't believe them. He goes deep into the scriptures, all the way back to Abraham, to show that the promise supersedes the covenant that we made at Sinai. Understand something, Paul knew the scriptures, and he used the scriptures, and he wielded the scriptures to set men free. His whole argument in chapter 3 and chapter 4. How careful we have to be. But when it comes to cheap grace, and there are people that preach cheap grace, how do we know? Well, do they speak about sin? And our need to be courageous against sin. Do they speak about hell? And the fear of men going to hell. Do they speak on examining their faith? Do they preach on picking up your cross? Do they preach on denying yourself? If those elements and other elements are not consistently within their preaching, then they are preaching a different gospel than the one Paul preached, than the one Christ preached, and the one the other apostles preached. How do I know? How can I really tell? What is the, the, the hallmark sign that I know it's a gospel message? And this is it. When Jesus Christ alone gets all the glory, then you know it's a gospel message. Pure and simple. If the message is getting me to do anything without telling me what Christ has already done for me, it's not a gospel message. If the indicative of this is what Christ has done, He has died to set you free, it is by faith you are saved, you are born again, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, you are a repository of the grace of God and the love of God and the power of God now, now go and live it out by grace. That's a gospel message. But if you're coming here and you're being manipulated to give, manipulated to do this, and manipulated to do that, understand something. If someone is not putting Jesus Christ first and Jesus Christ last, then yet there should be nothing in the middle. It's not the gospel. How important it is to understand 
what the gospel of Jesus Christ really is. I pray as we go through the book of Galatians, you'll get more sharper in your discernment that you won't fall prey to writing checks or you won't fall prey to what people are telling you on television or reading in books because they're the crowd pleaser and because there's large crowds and there's a lot of books sold and the stadiums are full and surely they must know what they're doing and, and the music is great but at the end of it there's no gospel, there's no message that what Jesus Christ perfectly paid for your salvation and as you keep your eyes on Jesus you will change Father, we just thank you, Lord, for the message that Paul preached, Father. I pray as a church, Lord, we dig into this book, Father. We know it's freedom. We know it's power. We know it's light, that it's shining to the dark place, Father God. That it bring us ever closer to you, Lord God. Father, I just thank you for this marvelous epistle that Paul fought tooth and nail. He went against the worst of the worst to make sure that this wonderful message of what Jesus Christ, your Son, has done for us at the cross would not be distorted, Lord God. But it's still here again, 2,000 years, setting people free in Christ's precious name.